Thanks, Brian. Well, some people love pretty much everything about Christmas. Other people sort of dread everything about Christmas. I suspect most of us are somewhere in between. Uh, For my my daughter, Rose, would be the first person. She loves almost everything about Christmas. She's got a, a thing about Christmas music. And so well before Thanksgiving, she puts her Pandora station on Christmas, and she listens to Christmas music 24-7 all the way to New Year's Day. And so it's everything from I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus to Silent Night. She loves it all. If you mention a Christmas song, chances are she knows every single word of the song. Christmas is a happy time for her. Uh, There are other people, if you're in that first category, you may find it hard to believe, but other people barely tolerate the Christmas season. For example, the Christmas work party, aka mandatory fun. Uh, There are some people that just find gift giving just a chore, a pain. I have to buy gifts for people that don't really need anything else, and I have to read their mind and find out what they'd actually like. Sometimes there's the stress of finances. We can't afford to buy presents, and that's the expectation. Uh, For some people, uh, and again, you may find it hard to believe, some people find family stressful, okay? And so everything's happy but family. Other people, there's just this subtle pressure to to have the perfect Christmas. Everything has to be just like, just right, like on social media. And then, for some people, no doubt, some people here in the room, uh, Christmas season is full of reminders of loss. It could be the the death of a loved one, could be a divorce, uh, could be financial strain, could be an uncertain future. And so while there's this, this hope that everything will be happy and joyful, there's sadness and there's grief. And so it's the most wonderful time of the year until it's not, right? And so this year we thought that we would take a kind of an honest look at the issues that we all face during the Christmas season. Today's going to be kind of a a broad perspective that we hope will really be valuable for uh, all of us in these these scenarios I painted. And uh, then the next three weeks we'll talk about uh, gift giving, family stresses, and grief. And we'll, we'll explore some of what the Bible has to say about negotiating these issues. But today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew 1 that has the potential to alter our entire perspective about the Christmas season and really about all of life. And so uh, understanding what God actually promised at the first Christmas, that sounds like a good idea, right? What is God, uh, God's perspective? What is Christmas all about? What does he want to give us in relation to uh, the coming of Christ? And uh, that can really change our expectations and even our desires during this time of year. And so we're going to begin Matthew 1, 18. And here Matthew introduces Jesus by describing a very complex scenario, okay? It involves a man named Joseph, and a young woman named Mary. And if you've never read this verse before, I hope you have your seatbelt on. This is what we read. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, you got all that? 
In that day, a betrothal was a lot more significant than an engagement in our day. It was actually legally binding. If you wanted to break off a betrothal, you had to get a certificate of divorce. And what we read is that when Mary was betrothed to, to Joseph, and before they had relations, as she was found to be with child. What that probably means is that Mary was showing, okay? And so it was obvious. She's betrothed and she's pregnant. And uh, Matthew tells the readers what Joseph didn't yet understand, namely that Mary's pregnancy was by the Holy Spirit. And the God of the Bible, the one true God of the Bible, is is one God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the invisible, personal presence of God. And we aren't told how the Holy Spirit brought about Mary's pregnancy. What's emphasized here is that it was unique. Uh, Instead of being the result of a man and a woman coming together, uh, her pregnancy was miraculously brought about by the Spirit of God. And so her pregnancy was unique. And we had this hinted at earlier in the chapter. You probably skipped over Matthew 1, 1 through 16. It's a genealogy. It's not exactly riveting when you read it, but there's this predictable monotony. Person A became the father of person B. Person B became the father of person C. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. All the way down till you get to verse 16, and the monotony is broken. We read this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So do you see what he did? He didn't say Jacob was the father of Joseph and Joseph was the father of Jesus. Joseph was the husband of Mary and Mary was the mother of Jesus. And so Joseph was legally uh, Jesus' father, but not biologically. And so, Matthew simply says that Mary gave birth to this child who is called the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the promised king who would sit on the throne of David forever. Down in verse 19, notice Joseph's response. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And so this is a unique scenario, right? We can't uh, we can't uh, blame Joseph for assuming my, my betrothed has been unfaithful to me, right? And so he says he was a righteous man, meaning he followed the law. The law actually stated that if anyone's caught in adultery, they should be stoned in this day. That almost never happened. And so they, what they did with the woman anyway was they would publicly shame her, disgrace her. Then they would send her away to have the child and raise the child. But Joseph, uh, he was righteous, so he wasn't going to marry her. He couldn't marry someone who'd been unfaithful. But he was also compassionate, so he had no desire to disgrace her. So his plan was, I'm just going to send her away secretly, and, uh, and that will be that. But God intervened, and God let Joseph know that he and Mary were part of a much larger story that would actually change the history of the world. Look at verse 20. Again, this is one of those, those sentences, and you're just scratching your head. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Okay, so Joseph goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And in that dream, an angel 
appears to him. So in the Bible, angels are typically messengers from God. They have a message from God for somebody. And so he's dreaming, he's in this dream, and in the dream, an angel appears to him. And this is what the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to, to take Mary as your wife. She hasn't been unfaithful. Uh, this child is of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're not told any, anything about how that happened, okay? But that's the explanation that he gets. And instead of saying, and by the way, you can name the kid whatever you want, he says, oh, sure, we've already picked out a name for this child. He shall be called Jesus. And that's the, the Greek uh, uh, term for Joshua in the Old Testament, meaning Yahweh saves. Yahweh was the God of the Jews. Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And the angel says that that's an appropriate name for this child because he will save his people from their sins. And uh, in the Bible, uh, the, the biggest threat to our well-being, it's not economic downturn, it's not armies, it's not growing old, it's not natural disasters. The biggest threat to our well-being is sin, which basically means uh, turning away from God and rejecting His ways. And you say, well, what ways are you talking about? Well, the ways of God are things like love, joy, peace, patience kindness. These are godly things. Uh, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. And so if you exhibit those things, you're going you're gonna to give life to people. If you experience those from others, you will experience life from them. Instead, uh, we tend, we are bent to show things like hatred, anger, malice, selfishness, lying, gossip, slander, cheating, deception, all of those things. And those, those are, are sins of the heart that suck the life out of us and out of other people. They ruin lives, they poison families, they, they uh, ruin whole societies. What we're told here is that this child, Jesus, would rescue us from our sins, from those types of things. And if you keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, that, that Jesus would save us from our sins by dying on the cross in our place. And so all the sin, all the sin and the guilt and the shame that we've accumulated was laid on Jesus Christ so that those who believe in him might have all their sins wiped out. It says that they're removed as far as the east is from the west. He forgives our sins. And basically what that means is God says, you've offended me, but I'm never, ever going to make you pay for it. I'm never going to throw it in your face. I'm never going to hold it against you. And uh, God actually dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, and he gives us the desire and the power to live in ways that please him. And in verse 22, Matthew says that the birth of this child was the fulfillment of an Old Testament scripture. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here's the, the prophecy in Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, in case you don't know Hebrew, translated means God with us. And so here in Matthew 1, the meaning of this is pretty clear, right? Uh, the virgin is Mary, the son 
is Jesus. He is the one who will be called Emmanuel. And so, in a very literal sense, Jesus is God with us. Being conceived of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, the original context in Matthew 7 is somewhat complex, but basically, uh, there was a, an evil king in Israel, like most of them were, uh, who, who didn't trust in God. He was trusting in Assyria, uh, this, this pagan nation, to rescue him and protect him and Jerusalem. And uh, Isaiah comes to him and says, the only way you're going to be secure is if you trust in Yahweh. And he says, to remind you that God is faithful and that he will rescue you. We read in Isaiah 7, 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Notice, I'm going to give, he's going to give, us this, give him this reminder that would point him back to this truth that God is with them and that he was, was willing to rescue them. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, what's interesting here is that there was a term for virgin that could have been used here. The term translated virgin was a broader term. It could include a virgin, but it meant a, a young woman of marriageable age, and sometimes it referred to a virgin. But the, the emphasis is that this young woman would give birth to a son, and he would be given the name Emmanuel. And so when people saw this kid running around, they're like, oh, look, there's God with us. Oh, look, God with us is climbing up a tree. So every time they saw him, it would be this reminder, God is with us, therefore, we should trust in him. And in the Bible in general, and definitely in the context in Isaiah, this idea that God was with them didn't mean that it didn't matter how they lived their lives. Uh, if God is with us, then everything's fine. No, if God is with you, that demands that you trust in him. And so God is not like a genie in a bottle. God does not say, your wish is my command. He actually says, no, I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. Therefore, if you're smart, you will align yourself with my ways. You will trust in me. You will learn how to please me. And so if they trusted in him, they would experience his care and protection. Back in Matthew 1, in light of this context, consider again how Matthew quotes this verse. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So Mary conceived this child by the Holy Spirit as, a, as the ultimate fulfillment, meaning that, that event gave fullest expression to this scripture we find in Isaiah 7.14. And significantly, in verse 23, Matthew uses a Greek word, the most explicit word to refer to a virgin. As we saw here, he is emphasizing that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. And so we read in verse 23, here's the fulfillment. Behold, the virgin Mary shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in a very literal sense, God became one of us. God is with us because he took on flesh and blood. Because he was fully God, he was sinless, and he was, was a, a, uh, a suitable sacrifice for us. Because he was fully human, he could be the sacrifice for humanity. And so Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection all scream, I am with you. God is saying, I am with you. 
I am for you. Uh, trust in me, and you will experience my care and my protection. Look at verses 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's hard to say how much Joseph really understood about the, you know, what he had, had heard in this, in this dream, but he accepted that Mary had not been unfaithful to him, and he took her as his wife, and they named the child Jesus. And so if you want to see the, the core promise of the first Christmas, and you want to set your expectations accordingly, this is it. In Christ Jesus, God is with us. In Christ Jesus, God is with us. And so it, it turns out that God is not is sitting up in heaven looking down at us with his arm, arms crossed thinking, you losers, uh, you are never going to get your, your act together. It turns out God has open arms and he says, I so want a relationship with you that I sent my one and only son to die for you. He became one of you. He is with you so that as you believe in him, you might actually have life. You might be rescued from your sins. You accept what he did and I will be, be with you now and forever. And so we're going to talk the next three weeks about the implications of that for specific situations. For example, uh, when, when, if you're in the midst of some type of grief, what difference does it make if God is with you versus you're all alone, you're by yourself? I think you'd agree it makes a world of difference if God is with you and you're experiencing his care and his protection. But today I want to just encourage you to, to uh, respond to this, this truth that God is with us in, in two different ways and uh, two related ways. And I've, I've stated these in I will statements so you can adopt them as your own if you so choose. But the first is this. The first response is, since God is with us in Jesus, I will trust in him this season. Instead of just knowing about him, instead of ignoring him, I will actually place my confidence in him. I will trust him. And as we've always already discussed, if we don't trust Jesus, it doesn't really matter that God is with us. It's not magic. It doesn't mean don't worry about life because God is with. No, because he's with us, we can trust him and live with the assurance that he has saved us from our sins. He's rescued us and he will be with us no matter what we experience in this life. And so if a relationship with God is, is kind of new to you, you might find yourself thinking, this is actually pretty common, to think, you know, I don't really know if I can pull that off. I don't know if I'm that spiritual. I don't know if I'm that committed. I don't know if I can, can really hold my end of the bargain long enough to actually do all these things that please Jesus. And uh, if you're thinking that, you're, you're not alone at all. But the good news is, is that God doesn't expect you to clean up your act and then come to him and present him as something that, that he can use. Now, the reason Jesus became one of us, the reason Jesus died for us, is because we could not get our act together. We're not committed enough. We're not spiritual enough. Uh, we're not consistent enough to trust him. 
And so if you want to experience God with you in this season of, of life, and whether it's loneliness or grief or financial stress or relational pain, whatever it is, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Put your confidence in him. And it does involve bowing the knee. It does involve admitting, God, I admit that I've, I've wronged you a thousand ways. I've betrayed you times without number. But I believe that when Jesus died, he bore that on the cross. So I trust in that. And I trust that, that because of what he did, and I believe in that, you will take away my sin. And that's what he does. He forgives our sin. He puts his spirit within us. And if you've never experienced this, it's, it's hard to really describe it. You have this internal confirmation that now I belong to God. In Galatians, it actually says that we internally kind of instinctively cry out to God as our father. And so trust in Jesus and you'll experience this, this new birth as it's, it's called in John. The second response flows from the first. The second response is to, to say, to declare, I will, therefore I will seek to experience Jesus in specific situations this, script, this, this uh, season. Um, in Scripture, what God promises we should seek. Again, the idea, God is with us, so do whatever you want, believe whatever. No, if God promises something, that's what we seek. That's what we press into. And so I would ask you, what, what's one situation you're facing this season, one situation where you absolutely need God to be with you? What situation do you care about the most? What situation perhaps is the most troubling to you right now? Where do you need to experience the presence of God? This promise of, of Emmanuel, it's not meant to be just a vague spiritual idea. The reality of God with us is meant, means that we can experience him in specific, tangible situations. And so this means we experience God in the context of money and gift giving. We experience him in the, the context of family dynamics. We experience him in the midst of our grief. And we'll talk about these things in coming weeks. But one example that I find very compelling is in 2 Timothy 4. Paul is describing being in prison and what he experienced there. And uh, he had been accused unjustly, he had been imprisoned, and uh, he had been abandoned, actually. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. And at this point, you might expect him to flame those people, Right? They've deserted him. They abandoned him. But he says this, may it not be counted against them. And so his heart was still soft. He was full of forgiveness toward those that had wronged him. And then he said, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me. That's Emmanuel. That's God with him in the specific tangible circumstance of being in prison and being all alone and without any human support. And so in a similar way, you and I can experience God in the situations that mean the most to us this Christmas season. And so 
it's just going to happen. You and I are going to experience all sorts of, of circumstances and situations this Christmas season. Some of them will welcome. Some of them will love. They'll be very pleasant. Others of them will be very discouraging, very dis- disappointing, very disagreeable. And I know you know this, but I'm going to remind you of this, is that you and I have little or no control over our circumstances, okay? We can't control, we can't manage our circumstances. And you and I have little or no control over the people around us, those that we love and appreciate and enjoy, and those that drive us crazy, okay? And so if our expectation is, I'm gonna have the perfect Christmas season and everything's gonna line up, and by the, by the time I wake up the day after Christmas, I'm just gonna look back and say, man, that was it. That was the, the pinnacle of Christmases, no? How about letting go of all that and saying, you know, if God has promised Emmanuel, maybe that should be my expectation this season. My ambition this season is to experience God with me in the midst of all the joys, in the midst of all the frustrations, in the midst of all the circumstances that are far beyond my control. So if you and I wake up on, on December 26 and we look back and we say, wow, God was with me. I experienced God this year. Then that will be a satisfying season we carry that into the next year, and we understand this is a promise throughout this life and into the next. We are making available these uh, devotional readings, a small team of people. I'm not responsible for these, and so I will tell you without any, any uh, personal bias, these are fantastic. These are devotions for five days a week. We'll provide one of these each week during the Advent season. And you'll find a a scripture reading, you'll find spiritual insights, you'll find suggested prayers. And this is a way that that you and I can go, and I'm going to use this in my time with the Lord. This is a way we can go deeper in the topics we're talking about on Sunday and further than, than we do here on Sunday morning. And so I think we still have some of these out in the foyer. Uh, If not, if you get the e-blast, if you want the e-blast, check the box on the back of the card. But on Tuesday, we'll have a link uh, in the e-blast where you can read it online. But it's really fantastic. Well, the Lord's table provides an opportunity for us to remember what it, it cost Jesus to become one of us and to rescue us from our sin. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And the the Lord's table makes clear that that God literally could not have done anything more costly than he did by becoming one of us and Jesus dying for our sins. And so if you trust in Jesus alone to take away your sin, to rescue you, we'd love for you to join us at the Lord's table here. So we'll pass the bread. If you need non-allergen bread, you'll find it in the center of the tray. Hold the bread till we've all received, and then we'll eat together as an expression of our unity. Uh, Then we'll pass the cup, hold the cup until we've all received, and then we'll drink together. If you've not yet trusted in in Jesus, we are really glad you're here, and uh, we'll just ask you to pass the tray on, and uh, nobody will think a thing of it. But take this time to ponder the possibility that you can experience God himself through 
Jesus. And you can simply turn to him and trust and breathe a prayer and confess your sin and put your trust in Jesus and begin this journey. And so I'd like to pray as our servers come forward now. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time to consider the, the body and blood of Christ. God, we pray that you would impress upon us ways that we need to experience you during this season of, uh, of Christmas. And God, we pray that you would soften our hearts and make us open to what you want to do and how you want to work in our midst. And so, God, we turn to you now. We invite you to impress upon us the things we need to understand. In Jesus' name, amen.